When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Money Nerds Podcast, where owning a calculator, budgeting your money, and having a net worth is actually cool. I'm your host, Whitney Hansen, and each week I'll be chatting with inspiring people to learn their secrets to financial success. Now let's dive into the show. Hey, Money Nerds, today I'm going to share with you five financial fallacies that sometimes we fall into this trap and believe, and I want to dispel some of those myths. So let's go ahead and dive in. The first financial fallacy that we often come across in personal finance is that money will make me happy. Now, this concept was actually brought to the forefront when there was a lot of research and studies that showed that money did make people happier up to $75,000. Now, $75,000, you know, 10, 20 years ago is different than 75,000 today. So I was curious to see if that study still withstood the chance of time. And honestly, it didn't. And I don't think anyone's surprised. So the old research showed that happiness would increase up to $75,000 per year. That data is old. The new research from Matthew Killingsworth and Barbara Mellers from University of Pennsylvania, they asked 33,391 working U.S. adults. Now, these were people with a median income of $85,000 per year. So they were doing pretty okay. And they asked them about their sense of well-being, trying to allude to their sense of happiness. And the new findings, I think this is so interesting, suggest that happiness does improve with higher earnings. Duh, right? I don't think anyone's surprised here, but the amount has changed drastically. The amount that they found an increase in was up to $500,000 a year. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to earn $500,000, and if you don't hit that amount, you will never be happy. That's not at all what they're saying, but what they are saying is that the happiest 30% of the people that they did this survey on, they found that their increased feelings of happiness drastically accelerated up to around $100,000 a year. So there is a lot of proof that, you know, it does kind of go hand in hand. Yes, more money. We hear more money, more problems. That's not always the case either. I do think that there is a lot to be said about money being such a contributing factor to your overall well-being. Now think about it this way. If you are living paycheck to paycheck, and I mean truly paycheck to paycheck, or you are at the poverty line, or you are barely making ends meet, it's really hard to feel good about your well-being. It's also hard to live a well-being life because maybe you aren't going to the doctor as often as you should. Maybe you're not scheduling your dentist appointments or your eye appointments or the little tiny things. Maybe you're not able to buy the groceries that you prefer to buy. So there's a lot of factors there that go into money and happiness. And I do believe that if you are paycheck to paycheck, it is so much harder to feel happy with your life. Not saying it's impossible. We have seen plenty of studies and proof that show that people can actually be happy when they're focusing on things outside of the monetary aspect. But in general, it is really hard to be happy and feel increased feelings of well-being when you're barely making ends meet. And so I do think that one of the things that we can take away from this is when we're trying to figure out how can we be happier people? How do we earn more money? Yes, that will help. 
But a lot of the factors to true happiness are things that come from outside of money, things like community, having a really supportive community network, friend group, family system, whatever it might be. That is a big deal. Also having hobbies and passions and purpose is another huge deal. And ultimately, I think all of those kinds of things, yes, money can buy you hobbies and even sometimes community, but it's not a requirement. So I do think it is important to remember that it's not always about money, but the new studies are showing up to $100,000, you're going to see a steep increase in your happiness level and your sense of well-being. So I do think that is very notable. The next fallacy that we often come across in personal finance is that all debt is bad. Have you heard this? I think I've even been guilty of saying this at times. And I don't think that all debt is created equal. I do think that there's some types of debt that are way harder than others to get out of, to feel good about. And credit card debt would be one of those areas just because of the way they charge interest. If you didn't listen to the episode I did on the Money Nerds podcast, a few episodes back on all things debt and how to pay off debt, I would highly recommend going there because we talk about that credit card interest portion in so much detail. So it's really, really good to get that refresher. But things like a mortgage is not necessarily always bad debt. Sometimes it's good debt and sometimes it is bad debt. It just depends on how you purchase the house. Like if you are overbuying on your home and that's your primary expense and it's really keeping you house poor, then yeah, I would say that probably is bad debt. If you purchased a house and it's well within, you know, 25 to 30% of your take-home pay and you can truly afford that payment, it's probably not a burden. And I could say that, you know, it might be a good thing for you. Now, the same thing goes for student loans. I don't fall into the camp of saying all student debt is good debt. I really don't believe that. I feel like there's so many ways to get an education outside of the formal education system. And I'm not saying that it isn't required. I think for some professions, you have to have a, a degree or some type of certificate and that is a requirement. But I don't think that simply using the blanket statement of all student debt is good debt, and therefore we should just all go to college, take out as much debt as we need to get through, and to support ourselves so that we don't have to work as much during school so we can get better grades. I don't think that that is a good philosophy. I think, in fact, what we're seeing now is too many people are truly in so much student debt that it is costing them their future. They're not able to invest. They're not able to buy a house if they chose. They are living paycheck to paycheck. They're taking jobs that they don't really love because they have to make these payments. I do feel like it. there is a double-edged sword to the student debt crisis. And I'm not going to go into too much detail there, but I do think it's important that anytime you're taking out debt, whether it's for your personal life, maybe it's a car loan, um, ideally you're avoiding credit card debt like the plague. Like That is something I can honestly say as a blanket statement, I I never really support credit card debt. I think it's really, really expensive and very hard to get out of. But I do believe sometimes pieces of debt can help you better your life. Maybe you're taking out debt to buy a rental property, and that's going to help you increase your income and build your wealth in a different way. I do think anytime you're taking out debt, it's important to run an ROI, return on investment calculator. You have to go through the math and the data to see, does this actually make sense? Even when you're buying a house, I know sometimes people feel like buying a house is better than renting because rent is just throwing your money away. That's not always true. Sometimes what we find is that when you're actually buying a house, 
you might be okay for a little bit. And then all of a sudden, year five or six, you have to replace your roof. And that's a $20,000 expense. Now, all of that gain in equity could be completely diminished just because you had to repair the roof. So it doesn't always mathematically make sense. But any type of debt you're going to take out, run that scenario, run your return on investment, see if it's actually worth it, see if it's a good deal, and be very careful and consider the type of debt before you sign up for it. The next financial fallacy that we often come across is I can't afford to save. Now, I do believe that there are some people that truly cannot afford to save. What I find is most of the people that listen to this podcast, that's not really your situation. You have some money, you have a little bit of disposable income, you might take a vacation, you might have a car payment. Like you generally speaking, have the money to be able to save. It may not feel like it, but you truly do. So what I know is that a lot of people feel like they don't have the money to save until they create their budget and they get into the weeds on their finances. One of the greatest things you can do for yourself is just printing off the past 30 days of your transactions, grabbing three different colored highlighters and setting different categories. Like maybe it's eating out, could be Amazon, could be shopping, whatever your situation is, maybe even groceries. And you're going to go through and line by line highlight each of the different transactions per category. And what this shows you is how much money we truly waste. And I'm totally throwing myself in this camp. I do the same thing from time to time. I'm not proud of it, but I do. It's very normal. When you don't pay attention, things just start to trickle away from you. This is very, very typical. So when you do that, what you see is that you probably have enough money to be able to save. There's a lot of small micro choices that you can make in your daily life that lead you to more income, that lead you to having control of your cash flow, and ultimately you're able to save that money more effectively. But you have to know where your money leaks are first. So I do believe that making a saving a habit is so key here. There's lots of ways to do the habit portion. I talk about this so much on this podcast too. I've done full episodes on changing your life, money habits, mindset, that kind of stuff. So to give you a briefing of that, one of the best ways to make it a habit is to make it automatic. Take yourself out of that equation and set up an automatic savings transfer from your checking account to a high yield savings account. I prefer Ally Bank. There's lots of great ones out there. This is by no means an endorsement. So you can go through and you can move money from your checking to your savings, but it's happening automatically. So you don't have to worry about like, oh shoot, can I actually afford to save? It already happened. It already was like the first thing that happened when you got your paycheck. So that's a really good place to be. And that's a great way of building up that saving habit. I also think another really good way to afford savings more effectively is to look at those details in your financial statement and identify ways that you are spending out of emotions or you know boredom, sadness, madness, happiness, like all of those different things. We all have emotional triggers sometimes. What I find for most people is weekends tend to be a huge trigger for spending money. Have you noticed this? I look at a ton of budgets as a financial coach, and when I look at people's budgets, what I usually notice is there's kind of two areas of our normal week that we generally will spend more on. It's after we get off work because we're tired and we just want convenience, so we'll just grab food on the way home, we'll order DoorDash, whatever it might be, and it's weekends. Anytime you leave the house on a weekend, I would challenge you to look at how much does it cost 
every single time you leave the house on a Saturday or Sunday. It's probably crazy. When I did this for myself, I was noticing that I was spending about $25 every time I left the house on a Saturday or Sunday. Now that was different types of things. Sometimes it was like grabbing coffee, going on a walk, uh, grabbing coffee for my walk, I should say. It was sometimes just running errands. It, it really does add up. And so I would challenge you to figure out how much do you typically spend on a normal weekend? And is there a way that you can reduce that amount? This is a small thing to do, but I'm all about habit change. And I think that is another small habit change you can incorporate into your life is just observing how you behave and how that affects your finances. Now, the next financial fallacy is I'll start saving and investing later. This one really grinds my gears because I don't know I mean, I assume if you've listened to this podcast or you have any interest in personal finance whatsoever, you have seen those compound interest charts. You know what I'm talking about? The one that shows like person A that invests when they're 19, person B that invests when they're 27, and how much of a difference their income or their wealth is over 20, 30, 40 years. It's pretty crazy. That was one of the first things that triggered me into getting into personal finance was seeing how much money can be gained by just starting early and how little you actually have to invest if you start early. But what I know is a lot of times it's really, it feels overwhelming when you're just barely making ends meet, you're scraping by, you feel like you don't even have money for groceries sometimes, let alone investing or savings. It really can feel like investing is just a luxury. And I want you to change your mindset on this. Even if you can only afford 10 to 20 bucks a month, it is better than nothing. But it is so key that we start investing early and often so that you have all of those years of compounding growth to work in your favor so you can start building wealth truly passively. You set it, you forget it, you let your your wealth grow over time. And 20, 30, 40 years down the road, you're going to see a huge increase in gains. But it's important that you don't put off investing. It is so key. I know I talk about this all the time, but those small amounts invested regularly, they do compound. They do make you a huge amount of wealth, even again, 50 bucks a month, $100 a month. It doesn't take a ton, but I would not deprioritize that. I would make sure that that is something that you are actively working on no matter what. I would say at a minimum, Get your free match on a 401k if you have that. And if you don't have that, then turn to something like a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA, depending on your tax bracket situation, and figure out which of those is going to be best and start actively doing this a little bit more. It makes such a big difference. I would also highly recommend if you need some more investing information, it feels overwhelming, go listen to the episode I did that is titled How to Grow Your Money. And I do a deep dive on all things investing and what to look for and how this can affect you over the long run. So that's a really, really great place to be. And I also think if you have that mindset of like, I can't save money or I can't invest, I'll just do it later. The How to Grow Your Money episode will also help you understand exactly what you need to do to increase your income so you do have more disposable income to invest and save. The next financial fallacy I come across and breaks my heart is I don't need a budget. Oh, okay. Now listen, I don't think budgeting is something that everybody does the same. I find that even people that claim they do like the anti-budget were like, oh, I, I actually don't budget. It's kind of BS. They actually are still budgeting. It's just a different way of budgeting. But essentially a budget is just a plan for your money. So when people say, I don't need a plan for my money, 
Yeah, right, right? Like we all need a plan for our money. That's the whole point. Over the course of your life, at a minimum, if you only made $30,000 a year and you never got a raise, which is highly unlikely, and you go through your entire life, that $30,000 a year is over $1.3 million. So of course we need a plan for our money. Our goal is to retain as much of that $1.3 million so that we finally have the option to walk away from work and say, you know what, I'm done. I have enough money. I don't need this job. I can walk away. My bills are going to be covered. Everything's going to be supported. I have enough money that I'm financially independent. That's a huge step. But the way to get there is by, yes, investing, and B, by budgeting, because we got to know where's your cash flow going? Where are those money leaks? What is it that we can do to help you manage your finances better? And when you see it all on paper, think of it like a dashboard, when you have all of your income, all of your expenses, the due dates, how much money you're spending on groceries, on eating out, on fun money, I don't know, like activities, maybe you're going to concerts, like hobbies, whatever it might be. When you see all of that on paper, what it tells you is where your money is actually going. And then you get to make adjustments to that. You get to say, you know what, this isn't really a value for me. I'm going to take this off the table and put this in instead. I don't need to spend as much on dining out. If I claim that my value is my health, I can actually put that money, reallocate it into groceries and get higher quality foods. Like there's lots of ways that you can do this stuff, but when it's on paper, you can make that decision so much easier. So where I recommend starting is by creating a realistic budget. How do we create a realistic budget? We track our spending. We get clear on exactly where our money is going, where we're actually spending currently. And then we make those micro adjustments to do just a little tiny bit better each month. It's really that simple. You can use a notebook. You can use Google Sheets. There's lots of ways to do it. There's apps, there's software. I just recommend doing the way that's easiest, which I think is Google Sheets, where you can just download it for free on your phone and on your computer and start tracking your expenses and planning your next paycheck out. Okay, now I want to do a little bonus financial fallacy that I come across too, and that is that when you side hustle, you need the money. I think this is such a common thing and it's a, a sticking point for a lot of people because what it, it creates is a lot of job shame. It makes you feel guilty. If you take on a side hustle to better your life or to just buy nice shit, like maybe you just like to travel, you like to buy a nice car, you like nice clothes, you like to eat out more, like whatever your sitch is, usually side hustling can help us get there. And so often the narrative around side hustles is if you were to tell a group of your friends, or maybe you go to like a networking event, it's like a friend's party and you're, you're hanging out, you grab your drink and you're chatting with this new person that you've never met before. And they ask you that question. They always ask, what do you do for a living? You're like, oh my God, well, I do content marketing and this is why, you know, whatever your situation is. And then you tell them, but on the side, I walk dogs on Rover. Immediately, we start to feel shame because we feel like people are saying, do you not do well enough in your normal job? Is that why you're side hustling? Instead of just like keeping our nose on our own face and saying, that's awesome. That's so cool. I've always thought about side hustles as well. We start to get this job shame and it stops us from even taking that step of finding a side hustle that could truly change our life, like could absolutely transform the way you live on a normal basis. You could bring in an extra $500 a month. $500 a month over the course of a year is $6,000. That's a sweet vacation. Like, I don't care who you are. That's a good vacay. 
Or you could say my car payment is $350 a month, which, you know, if that's your stitch, you could side hustle to pay for your car payment. So then it doesn't feel like it actually comes from your normal nine to five income. There's lots of ways that you can do this. I think side hustling for nice things is one of the greatest things, but I also recognize that so many people are side hustling to pay off debt or to make ends meet because sometimes we're not willing to sacrifice other areas of our life. We're not going to sell our house and get a cheaper home. We're not going to sell our car and get a cheaper car. We don't find ways to reduce our groceries. I'm talking about the big three there. Those are the big three things that take up most people's income. So when we're not willing to sacrifice in those areas, sometimes we do need to side hustle to be able to pay the bills on time, to be able to continue investing. Those are the types of things where I think side hustles can be a great thing for people. But I do think there's that flip side where you can side hustle just because you want nice shit. And that's okay too. So that is my bonus fallacy. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, do me the biggest favor. Come say hi to me on Instagram. Just I'm at Whitney underscore Hanson underscore co. I'd love to see who's listening in, say hi to you, support you with your financial goals and connect. It means so much to me. Thank you so much for tuning in. And I will see you next week for another episode of the Money Nerds podcast. Bye. Bye.